Well, in 2007, the Tate Modern Museum in Britain featured an exhibit by Colombian-born artist Doris Salcedo that displays some of the turmoil I just prayed about. Entitled Shibboleth, Salcedo's piece was a crack in the floor of the museum 548 feet long. And the title of this piece is actually a reference to Judges 12, a story I would encourage you to read later this afternoon, where the Gileadites identified their enemies using a test of accents. Before people were allowed to cross the Jordan River into their territory, the Gileadites would ask them to say the word shibboleth. And the accent would betray where those people were from, and saying shibboleth rather than shibboleth became a death sentence. In some circles, the term shibboleth has come to mean a custom, a phrase, a use of language that acts as a test of belonging to a particular social group. So in 2007, when Salcedo cracked open a museum floor, she made visual all of the hidden ways in which we enforce boundaries and divisions. She exposed the irrational tests that we give to others, whether consciously or subconsciously, in order to maintain our comfort or our own safety protocols. Using this piece uh, in her 2018 commencement address at Covenant College, Dr. Elisa Yukiko Weikbrot explains something very important about dignity. I have just a piece of the quote up, but I'm going to read the quote in its entirety. She says, sometimes we believe that dignity is a pie to be divvied up among us. We worry that if we grant dignity to one group's suffering or accounting of history, that there is somehow less available for us. But this is foolish. We make God small when the reverse should be the case. For after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus' power. It magnifies it. This morning, we complete our series on this beautiful multi-ethnic community of God called the church, and we continue to travel along what I talked about last week, these biblical theological lines I started last week in Genesis, and we continue this morning by tracing God's multi-ethnic people across the centuries between the Old and New Testaments, through God's entrance into creation in the Gospels, and into the beginning of his church in the book of Acts. And similar to last week, we're going to be bouncing in a lot of different places in the Bible as we build out God's multi-ethnic revelation as he has shown us. And again, similar to last week, this sermon, this whole series, is not some kind of response to culture. I want to make that very clear. This is not some attempt to quickly fix some kind of problem. It is a response to what God has revealed in his word and the continuation of a long journey for all of us as a community to reflect our identity as his people. It is a journey that we must acknowledge the cracks in, the division, the dangers that are even present as we move towards the beauty that God is using to fill those cracks. And in the sermon, we're going to look at those cracks together. We're going to call out that brokenness. And like Dr. Whitebrook said, we're going to magnify the power of Jesus to undo this brokenness. But this week, instead of starting at the beginning of the story, I want us to start at the end. So that as we navigate the contours of the picture that God paints of his people, we know what the finished work of art will look like and what every brushstroke of the creator and savior king is working towards so that we might paint in the same direction. So the first text we are reading this morning comes from Revelation 5 and 7. And like I said, throughout this morning, we're going to be reading multiple passages, but we start here all the way at the end because I want this text to stick in our minds as we read all the other passages we're going to get to this morning. 
This text that shows us what God's artwork will look like at the end of time, a community not marked by cracks and concrete, but multi-ethnic beauty. So let me ask you, you're already doing it, turn or scroll to Revelation as we experience God's beautiful community in its final perfection. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to put it up on the screen. And if you're able, whether you're on campus or online, please stand with us as we read from God's word, starting at Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Flip the page to Revelation 7. Revelation 7 verse 9 says this, After I this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is God's word. You may be seated. God's plan for all of creation at the end of time is the display of his glory in all of its multinational, multicolor, and multilingual beauty. It is a mosaic rather than a melting pot where beauty is displayed not in the melting of difference into sameness, but in the diverse display of our worship of the same God. Notice that the worship was our God. So I want you to imagine with me a day when every hostility, every division that we prayed about this morning, every, every shibboleth and bias would not only be removed, but replaced Replaced by worship, substituted by salvation. A day when together as a kingdom of priests, the text says, this multi-ethnic community called the church proclaims that salvation belongs to our God. And the lamb that made it not only possible, but actual. That incredible hope of, of kingdom future is a hope we long to see when we hear about the pain of our black and brown brothers and sisters who fear for their lives doing normal everyday activities. When we experience the trauma of violence over and over again in this country, when we feel the division of a polarized and anger-charged society with a short fuse and one hand that seems to always be gripping a lighter. This is the hope we long for. But it is not a hope that we have to wait for. Right? It is a hope that has been building since Jesus resurrected and ascended to his throne. That's because the kingdom future is in an incomplete yet very real and significant way the kingdom now. To be even more specific this morning here, I'll give you the summary of everything that I am proposing. I'll give you my main point like I've done in the past. This is what I believe the Word of God is teaching this morning. And here it is. Multi-ethnicity is our new normal. Multi-ethnicity is our new normal. As the people of God, we reflect the kingdom of God to the world. We mirror and manifest new creation life. And that new creation life has at its core not just equality, but true multi-ethnicity. Something completely new from anything we've ever seen before. So if you've been tracking with us from last week, we, we talked about the Tower of Babel as one of our texts last week, and we saw how unity undertaken by humans, apart from God, is powerful, but it's powerful in the wrong direction. Right? And ultimately, that kind of unity is not the fulfillment of the image of God, but rebellion against that creator God. So this morning, I want us to explore how, because of Jesus, that reflection of God's image takes on new depths as we reflect his kingdom here and now. And we'll see that at its core, this reflection has multi-ethnicity as 
our new normal. And in order to see that, though, I, I, I want to go back to the beginning of God's church recorded in the book of Acts. Right? We started at the end of the story because I want that story, that, that end of the story to stick in your mind as we read through these texts. But we're going to go through the book of Acts, and we're going to go through some of the letters that was written after it. We're going to step into these different snapshots of the beautiful community that God is calling the church and let these stories and these letters written after them to explain what's going on for us. And in order to keep us moving along our biblical theological hike through the New Testament, which is going to be kind of quick, so you got to track with me here, there are three landmarks that I want us to explore in these areas. The first that we're going to look at is the church as an alternative community, a gathering of God's people fundamentally different than any other community in the world. Then we'll explore the church as a supernatural community where the spirit of God works to change us and redefine our divisions as demonstrations of worship. And we'll end by acknowledging the way this community is an imperfect community and yet on its way to being a perfect community at the end of time. So an alternative community, a supernatural community, and an imperfect community. Now, when I describe the church as an alternative community, what I don't mean is that the church is kind of some nice alternative alongside a bunch of other options. Right? I don't mean that it's one possible choice among many. I don't mean that it's even the best choice on the list. What I mean is that God's community is the only alternative to a sin-wracked humanity, a chaos-devastated creation, a broken world. And in a very real way, it is the only option for true and life-giving community. In order for God's people to live into that reality, we need to realize just how alternative and countercultural this community really is. And so what I want us to start with is the first chapter of Acts, where Jesus lays out the plan for his disciples after his resurrection. Now, if you're anything like me, when I'm listening to a sermon like this, I'm trying to keep up in my Bible. That is okay. Flip the pages. But just know that I'm going to put all the text that we're talking about up on the screen. Okay? With me? All right, here we go. In Jesus' mission briefing in Acts chapter 1, Jesus explains his kingdom goal to his disciples like this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What I want you to notice here is the geographical goal setting that Jesus has. It starts right where they are. I'm going to throw up this map on the screen so you can be tracking with what Jesus is talking about. If you notice at the bottom of the screen, right above where it says Judea, there's a little dot that says Jerusalem. That's where they currently are, right? And so Jesus says that, hey, that's where it starts. But then it starts to go further out, right? So now we're going into the the region of Judea. But then Jesus does something unusual, which you might not notice if you're watching this map because the next place Jesus talks about is Samaria, which you're like, okay, great. That seems like the next circle that we should be getting into. But what makes geographical sense in this moment, if you're listening to it as a Jewish believer, does not make cultural sense. Here's what I mean by this. The relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people at this time was broken, hostile, damaged by centuries upon centuries of prejudice and horrific acts. Behind the smokescreen of purity, the people of Israel injected and cultivated the dangerous ideology of racial purity, calling the Samar- going so far as calling the Samaritans half-breeds. So by the time Jesus lays out his plan to reach Samaria, the people of Samaria were not just regarded as some lost nation, but enemies of God and his people. The relationship was broken in both directions as well. Right? Historians record the atrocities that is committed by both people to each other throughout their long and violent history. I mean, it was so bad that a Jewish person traveling from Judea at the bottom to Galilee at the top 
would actually choose an alternate, longer route just to avoid going to Samaria. But not Jesus. You see, Jesus does not just give the church this mission in Acts chapter 1. He's actually assigning the continuation of a mission that he started way back in John chapter 4. When he intentionally travels through Samaria rather than avoiding it. And when he does that, he encounters a woman who actually becomes the first person in the gospel of John to respond to the good news of God's kingdom. And go out as a witness to the Samaritan people. People who Jesus loved. And now again in Acts chapter 1, Jesus refuses to let the gospel go around Samaria. He lays out his plan to transcend not just geographical boundaries, but cultural prejudices, and gather a different kind of community, an alternative one that will reach the ends of the earth internationally and interculturally. Jesus demands his people cross what they would have seen as a deep-rooted ethnic, religious, and cultural boundary solidified over centuries of history. And he promises them the Holy Spirit, to empower them to do that. Acts 2 records that promise being fulfilled when it tells us this scene. Acts 2, chapter 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now there's a lot to unpack in this scene, but what I want us to focus our attention on here is that the first experience of God's spirit in this brand new way, filling every believer, not just special people for special assignments, this brand new way is done in the presence of the nations. Did you catch that? Luke says that this was witnessed by God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And in a remarkable way, God takes the people who, who struggled to, and at times even refused to, live out the calling he had given them as priests to represent God to the nations and the nations to God. He takes these people, the Jewish people, in this moment as they represent every nation on earth where they come from, gathered in Jerusalem. He takes them and he displays the power and glory of his spirit before them. Instead of keeping the experience private and in the house that these disciples were in, God gathers a crowd and publicly declares that his kingdom has come, and he does it in multiple languages. The text says that Peter followed up this display with an explanation of the gospel and that 3,000 people believed. Multi-ethnicity is our new normal, but we must always keep at the center of this new normal the only constant, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Because this alternative community, this radical, countercultural, upside-down kingdom is only possible because of the gospel. Only the gospel can create a truly multi-ethnic community. Anything else will disintegrate the community from the inside out as it struggles to under the weight of a truly multi-ethnic space. 
So I want you to look at how Paul explains how the gospel, uh, explains the gospel mechanics behind this community in Acts in one of his letters to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 explains it like this. I told you we'd be in a lot of places. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were, once were far away and preached peace to, the, peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus, the one who is our peace, who embodies a new kind of peace, is the one who has made us into something new. He is the one who destroys the barriers and hostilities that sin enabled our differences to build and makes one new humanity, the church. He is the one who translated foreigners and strangers into citizens, not of Israel, but of God's kingdom. He is the one that doesn't just equalize people from different cultures, but who at the depth of our identity joins us together in him. You see, this is not just about equality that Jesus is talking about. It is about true and deep unity, so radical that Paul calls it one new humanity. And what's even more radical about this is that this is not a reality that we await to happen in the future. It is a reality we embody right now. Like I've said before from up here, as God's people, we are to live out who we already are. Who God has said we already are. Made up of diverse people equal in status and dignity as fellow citizens, reflecting the peace of Jesus by the way in which we live in this community. Multi-ethnicity is our new normal. And it is not just about doing mission to different people out there. Right? It is also, and even more fundamentally, about how we do church with all of our differences in here. But in order for all of this to happen, everything that I'm talking about, the Spirit needs to use the gospel to change our hearts. And this is why I describe this beautiful community not just as an alternative one, but a supernatural one. Jesus' call to take the gospel to Samaria was not just a slogan to be repeated. It was a mission to pursue, but like he explained, it was a mission that required the Spirit of God in more ways than one. So I want you to fast forward in the story of the church to Acts 8, where we encounter the Spirit's work in uh, the work of an evangelist named Philip. After the murder of an evangelist named Stephen, incredible persecution follows and scatters the church, and Luke explains in verse 4 that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And then Luke kind of shifts the focus and shines the light on Philip. 
who in verse 5, he says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria. He proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, they saw the signs he performed. They all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And verse 8 says, there was great joy in that city. Through Philip's preaching, the gospel brought joy to a Samaritan city. Right? It brought hope and freedom from sickness and demonic possession. But first, the gospel brought freedom for Philip. You see, Philip was a Jewish believer. The first work of the Spirit among the Samaritans happened long before Philip walked into that Samaritan city. It happened the moment Philip took his first step towards that Samaritan city. Remember the kind of hostility I explained earlier between Jewish people and Samaritan people? The line that separated the Samaritans and Jews was just as deep and just as seemingly immovable as the line that separates communities of color in our country here with prejudice and hate. And in this transformation of the spirit, Philip, a Jewish man, but more than that, a Christian, supernaturally overcomes the the generational hate that has been embedded in him, in his culture. He overcomes that by the spirit for the sake of the gospel. In a similar way, you and I must recognize that we are to pursue the leading of the spirit, even and especially across racial lines. We can't just think the right way and believe the right thing, that everybody is made in the image of God and that all people are equal with dignity and worth. Our right belief must become right action. And the work of the Spirit translated right belief to right action in Philip's life. But it also did it in more than Philip's life. You see, further down in the story in verses 14 through 16, Luke explains that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts and the stories, then you might remember that on one occasion, before a Samaritan village that rejected Jesus, John wanted to call down the fire of God to judge them. Kind of an extreme reaction, but makes sense when you think about their history. This John was on his way to Samaria to see the work of God. Verse 15, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Peter and John, they heard about the work of God and they went to participate in the work of God. And then the text says in verse 25 that after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord there in that Samaritan city and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Their journey was no longer around Samaria. It was in Samaria and on the way back to Jerusalem through Samaria for the sake of the gospel. The Spirit of God did not just stop at one city just like he didn't stop with Philip. The gospel made its way village after village in Samaria just like it made its way through Peter and John and changed the prejudiced hearts that they had and preached the word of God, the kingdom, the gospel. And change the church forever. Now, the next thing I want to touch on here, just to continue to make this supernatural point, is in Acts 10. And we don't have time to read this whole story, and I can't even put it up on the screen, even with the tiniest font. You won't read it. I can't read it. But I want to summarize it here for us. God continues to supernaturally shape his community here as a multi-ethnic community when he gives two different people two distinct visions. The first person is a guy named Cornelius the text describes as a Roman official who commands the Italian regiment, but even further describes as a God-fearer. For whatever reason, he was following the only true God. He was praying. He's actually 
demonstrating his worship by giving, even if he wasn't technically part of God's people. And God sends an angel to tell him to summon Simon Peter. And so he does that because after you get a vision from God, you kind of want to listen to what he says. And so he sends a crew of people to Simon Peter's house. And as they knock on the door, God starts to give Peter a vision. This is the second person with a different vision. And in that vision, God lays out a table for Peter. He lays out a buffet for Peter, but with all kinds of food. The problem is, as Peter sits down for this vision, the buffet plates are filled with both clean animals that the Jewish law allows Peter to eat and unclean animals that the Jewish law does not allow Peter to eat. Peter, like any good Jewish person, steps back and says, I'm not supposed to do that. God corrects him and says, Peter, do not call unclean what God has called clean. And just to get it in Simon Peter's head, he repeats the vision three times. Over and over, do not call unclean what God has called clean. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. Knock, knock. Cornelius' crew shows up, and God, just to make sure Peter gets the point, says, go with them. I've sent them to you. Go, Go with them. So Peter obediently goes, and this is where things start to get interesting. Because when Peter finally gets there, he walks into the house. The first thing he does is he names the elephant in the room. You guys know that it's not only inappropriate for me to be here right now. It's actually criminal according to our laws. But I am here not just because I like to live life on the edge, but because God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God's message somehow changed. You see, between Peter receiving this vision and walking into a Gentile, non-Jewish home, he has put two and two together that this was not about food. This was about people. This was about the kingdom. And so by the time Cornelius explains the vision that he had, Peter is ready to go. He's ready to preach. There's four shots of espresso in his system. He is ready to obey God. And so this is the introduction to his sermon in verse 34 of chapter 10. Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. There's no favoritism, no partiality, no ethnic or cultural preferences in God or among his people. Peter begins his sermon by reframing his own cultural prejudices according to the truth of Scripture and admits his error. It's really true that God doesn't pick favorites. The Jewish people are not God's favorites. They are God's messengers, and now they are the beginning of God's new people. And God accepts from every nation whoever fears him and does what is right, whoever acknowledges him as God and follows his way of life. And then Peter goes on to preach the good news of the gospel. And before he can even finish his sermon, and this is the hope and dream of every preacher ever, Before Peter can finish his sermon, the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter and falls down on the Gentile believers, confirming and authenticating that God has indeed come to the Gentiles. He has changed Gentiles' hearts. They have been invited into the kingdom of God, the multi-ethnic, multi-national, multi-lingual kingdom of God. But, like any good story, there's a plot twist. Because in chapter 11... Jewish believers who had not yet fully grasped this new thing that God was doing ignored the report that the Gentiles had received the word of God, the very first thing that Peter said, and accused Peter of criminal activity. 
The text says, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? So Peter has to go through the story and he explains everything that happened. And by the spirit of God, something supernatural occurs once again. And by the time we get to verse 18, the text says, when they heard this, they had no further objections. They praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God's multi-ethnic community does not just look different from the world as the only true option. It is also a work of the Spirit, a supernatural community. And like Peter and the rest of this church, we have to recognize that we are not the ones who lead in this area. We are the ones who follow God's lead in this area. But it doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play. right? Philip, Peter, and John still had to obey God and go. Cornelius and the Samaritans still had to receive the gospel and figure out together with Jewish believers what in this world this new normal was going to look like. So the question then becomes for us today, if multi-ethnicity is our new normal, similar to the, the way the church had to figure it out in the first century, what do we have to figure out here and now to look like our new normal? You see, Acts paints a multi-ethnic picture of God's church from the very beginning and By the end of chapter 2, that picture becomes a visible part of the testimony of God's church. So if multi-ethnicity is our new normal and weaved into the very fabric of what it means to be the church, in what ways do our actions and choices and reactions reject this new normal and embrace an anti-gospel, anti-church, and yes, even anti-Christ way of thinking, way of living out our identity as God's beautiful community? Why do we do the things that we do here in the way that we do them? How do we together create a space that is hospitable and welcoming for people who come from all different kinds of cultures? Dr. Irwin L. N.C. Jr., a pastor that I quoted last sermon, he's a pastor out in Washington, he wrote this book called A Beautiful Community, and he talks in there about being a hospitable community. And part of what he explains is that to be truly hospitable, a community has to believe two things. They have to believe that we are incomplete without each other, And that we each have something to share, something valuable to share with the community. Then he goes on to say, in order to live out that hospitality, a community needs to allow people united in Christ, diverse in ethnicity, to be what he calls co-owners and co-creators of a space. And, And if I say that, you're like, that sounds really hard. That's because it is. God has not called us to something easy. It's why you need the Holy Spirit to actually do it. This is not for the faint of heart. It is hard work and it requires honest prayer, asking God to search us, each of us, to probe and uncover any unrighteous ways in our hearts and in our minds because the reality is that we all have them. It's painful heart work and it requires humility, which is why I am so glad that in this last point that I'm about to make, that the Bible has included stories and scriptures where working this out was actually really hard. Right? The alternative community called the church is this supernatural community made possible and actual by the Spirit of God. But it is also not yet perfect. Right? Living this out, like I said, is incredibly difficult. We are an imperfect community, and that was no different in the early days of the church. I just told you the story of Acts 10 and 11 when Peter receives this vision from God and actually obeys God, opens the door to the Gentiles in faith. Well, the Spirit worked in, lo- in Peter's life to overcome his prejudices in that moment, but the transformation was not one and done. Paul records another instance in Galatians 2 where the Spirit still had to be at work in Peter's life. 
Paul, another one of the apostles, explains it like this in Galatians 2.11. He says, when Cephas, which means Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Very strong words, but if you've read anything from Paul, not unusual. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Changed man. But when they arrived... He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Calling him out in front of everybody, bold move. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The story that that Paul is telling here is that Peter's struggling, man. Because of fear, he takes a step backward away from the supernatural behavior that the Spirit of God has built in him and the supernatural reality of God's people. And if we're honest, that's kind of our story sometimes too. It can be hard. Or instead of stepping into what God is calling us to in hard moments, we step back from them. But we have to acknowledge that living out, like I just can't say it enough, living out this multi-ethnic reality as a community is difficult. We must never assume that we've gotten rid of all of our ethnic preferences, inclinations, and yes, even our prejudices. We have not arrived, and the Spirit still has to work. Old habits die hard, and yet, within this community, the community that surrounds us, the community that surrounded Peter, we have to be quick to point it out when it shows up. Old habits creep back up, but they are unacceptable in this community. They must be named, the text says, for the sake of the gospel. Paul explains in verse 20, in this same text, same story, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We live crucified lives as part of this supernatural, alternative, yet imperfect community where our preferences and our prejudices have been nailed to a cross and where Christ has made one new person uniting us deeper than anything else in all of creation. So, Eric, why do we need this new normal? Why is multi-ethnicity such a big deal? The reality is we have made idols out of our ethnic identities, our ethnic preferences. We've converted our differences into hostilities rather than beauty. We are, as uh, Miroslav Wolf, a theologian, says, trapped within the claims of our own ethnic and cultural community. And so by God's grace, we need each other to see God truly, to see reality as it is. And yes, this is still imperfect. I'll show you one more story from the text of Scripture as if you've not already had enough Scripture. If you guys get nothing else from this morning, I just read the Bible to you most of the time. But I'm going to show you one more story that Acts 6 talks about, this imperfect community, to kind of illustrate this again. Acts 6, this imperfect community was struggling to figure out what it meant to be the multi-ethnic people of God, and Luke tells a story like this, Acts 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, all right, there is an influx of people. It is growing. There's a lot of people showing up. The Hellenistic Jews, 
Greek Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, Hebrew Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So, so the 12, the apostles, the leaders of the church at this time, they gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse five, this proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, the evangelist we've already met. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So let me break the story down. A system meant to do good, meant to care for people, started to do harm. In specific, a system meant to take care of all widows was not caring for all widows well and was caring for Hebraic, the Hebrew widows, better than the Greek widows. The widows of one culture were being overlooked by a system of care. Now, as we read the story, the text doesn't really give us motives, so I don't want to assume motives in this space. To be honest, as it talks about that, the number of people in this church is greatly increasing. So what probably happened was not a problem of active prejudice, but probably poor management as the church grew larger. But whatever the case may be, the problem still needed to be addressed, regardless of active or passive prejudices. Gathering everyone together, the leaders of the church wisely and led by the Spirit, named the problem and offered the beginnings of a solution. Choose qualified men to manage this system for everyone. And what happened? The community did that, right? But notice who they chose. Every name on this list is a Greek name, which suggests that the men they chose to handle a multi-ethnic problem were multi-ethnic men. Even one of them is described at the end of the list as a convert to Judaism. These were men who could navigate both the Greek and the Jewish world. They were commissioned for and authorized to do the work. They picked the most qualified men, and part of that qualification was who they were as multi-ethnic people navigating in this space. And that is a good thing. The early church chose qualified men closest to the problem to take care of the issue and impact not just the widows who were overlooked, but the entire church and this system of care. You see, multi-ethnicity is our new normal, but it is far from easy. And issues are bound to arise. And this story shows that they were there from the very beginning. And we need each other both to see and to solve issues like this. Notice who brought up the complaint in the first place. The Jews were being affected by it. The Greek Jews. They saw the problem quicker than other people and they brought it up. Notice also what the leadership of the church did. What the church as a whole did. They listened and they responded. They didn't explain away the problem they legitimized it by gathering the community together and they solved it together with qualified men who were qualified not just spiritually but culturally, like I said, able to navigate the complexities of a multi-ethnic community. And this matters because even though it is true that race is socially constructed and bears no biological weight, that it is culturally conditioned rather than genetically valid, it is still a societal reality. As one New Testament theologian, Dr. Jarvis Williams, explains, he says, race is a biological fiction, but a sociological fact. 
And so even though there is one new human in this space, we still have to deal with the hostilities of living in this world. And the church recognizes that here in Acts 6, that something went wrong and it was falling along cultural lines. And so this alternative and supernatural community, still imperfect, was growing, responding to who God called them to be. And someday, this community will be perfect. This is why I wanted us to start in Revelation. Because the story of the early church, the story of the church now, must always be seen with the end in mind. Dr. Carl Ellis Jr. puts it like this, we should be operating according to the principles of the coming kingdom, not the principles of the present kingdom. Even and especially when that gets difficult, because it will. When all around us the atmosphere is charged with racial violence and injustice, so twisted that it distorts and twists images of God against each other, whether their skin is black or brown or they wear blue when they go to work. Everything we've talked about the last two weeks has the potential, and, and this is, I'm taking my preacher hat off for a second and putting on my pastor hat. Because everything we've talked about these past two weeks has the potential to both inspire us and discourage us. Right? Inspire us because we see where God is going and we see how beautiful it is, but discourage us because it just feels like it is taking too long. And too many of us are going to die along the way. But Dr. Insee writes that our hope is not based on progress, but on God's promises. The Bible is clear. Multi-ethnicity is core to our witness. That's the people that he is making. Not healing or people or even raising the dead, but the miracle of our unity in diversity. The alternative and supernatural community with all of its imperfections on the way to being made perfect. To stand against that pursuit. To stand against that pursuit. The true pursuit of unity and diversity is to shape God's people in our own image. Revelation 5.9 says it like this. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. This is the gospel. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 7 echoes, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, before Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, the God who sits on the throne, the Lamb who paid for that salvation. So you see, we are not a melting pot. Every nation, tribe, people, and language means that difference is identifiable. But it also means that difference is united in worship. There's no colorblind theology here. This is technicolor theology in worship. This is Kenyans and Dominicans and Koreans and Mexicans and Norwegians and Panamanians and Jordanians and Indians and Native Americans approaching the throne of God together. In, in saris, on camels, in kimonos and wayaveras, speaking Swahili and Spanish and Korean and Arabic and Malayalam and Korean and French and Chinese and Japanese, speaking every single language known to man. The table will be set with a feast filled with everybody's home cooking. 
the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ himself will be giving the toast. This is what we hope for. This is what we live in now, waiting for the day when it will come to a reality, but we live in that now, reflecting the kingdom of God then in this space now so that the world knows this is what God is working towards. The world, our neighbors here in Streamwood, should look at us and and wonder how in this world this community came to be. How people with so many differences could be together, devoted to each other, despite all of the difficulties that come with it. You see, multi-ethnicity is our new normal because multi-ethnicity is the heart of God. And no, it's not easy. There is a cost to be paid by everybody involved. But remember, like I said last week, Jesus paid that cost first. Jesus who laid his life down and came back to life and sits at the right hand of God who is shaping us as his beautiful community, paid the cost so that we might be in that beautiful community reflecting the image of God together better than we could do apart. His beautiful, alternative, supernatural community. Imperfect now, but someday, someday perfect, shining in all of God's glory. So we hope for. This is what we live into. And now this morning, this is what I want us to pray about. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning we pray that you would so capture us with this vision of life in your kingdom at the end of time that we begin to show that life here and now. Lord, we acknowledge that this morning there is much to mourn and lament with story after story of violence. There are not enough tears to cry for those lost who, regardless of their story, were made in your image. There are not enough tears to cry for those who are still enslaved in their prejudice and in their sin. There's confusion, anger, suspicion, frustration, and fear that is expressed by so many. And Lord, we pray urgently, we plead with you that you would, in us, continue to shape and reshape and reshape us as your multi-ethnic community marked by your spirit, as a testimony to the world of your gospel. Truly united and diverse, would you shape us as those who care for justice, actual justice, and not just cultural moments or political red herrings, no matter what party they come from? Would you give us eyes to see and discern wisdom that we might advocate for others? The message of your gospel is that we have the only true advocate in Jesus Christ who gave up his life for us and now calls us to give up our lives for him, to give up our lives for others. May we with Paul say that we have been crucified with Christ, that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, that our prejudices no longer control us, that we don't ignore what divides us, that we die to our ethnic inclinations, confronting every division that rears its ugly head among us, that we might keep in step with the gospel and all of that diverse beauty for your glory. Help us to love others like you have loved us. It's in your beautiful name that we plead. Amen.